there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The following episode contains descriptions of starvation, murder, and cannibalism that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. January 21st, 1847. It felt like the cold would never end. Eliza Williams trudged through the snow, legs aching with each step. The 25-year-old woman had come on the journey west with the Reed family as their cook. Her brother, an albino man named Bayless, had been working as a handyman for the Reeds as well. It was good employment, and the two of them had looked forward to a bright future in California. But once they arrived in Truckee River Valley, everything went horribly wrong. The entire party became snowed in, with supplies diminishing rapidly. At first, Bayless and Eliza took care of the Reed children, but only a month after getting caught in the valley, Bayless died of fever. He was the first to perish at the lake camp. As rations thinned, Eliza found her own position even more tenuous. Having their own cook had once been a luxury the Reeds could afford, but now that food was such a scarce resource, she was merely another mouth to feed. She had to fend for herself. When Eliza finally reached the Breen family's cabin, she pleaded with the occupants to give her a bit of beef. She couldn't stomach the scraps of oxhide Mrs. Graves had given her. She received sympathy, but nothing else. Patrick Breen's diary noted simply, Eliza will not eat hides. Mrs. Reed sent her back to live or die on them. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our third and final episode on the Donner Party, a group of over 80 would-be settlers who became trapped on their way to the largely unclaimed territory of California. This week, we'll follow the remaining survivors to the end of their journey. After slaughtering almost all of their livestock for food and getting buffeted by multiple snowstorms, the men and women of the Donner Party faced the likely prospect that they would be trapped in the Truckee River Valley for the rest of the winter. Many of the group, including the leader of the party, George Donner, were too weak to travel. The rest had to weigh their options. Would they attempt to brave the elements and risk dying in the cold? 
or stay with their families and risk starvation. On December 16th, a group of 15 men and women, nicknamed the Forlorn Hope, set out to summit the Sierra Nevada mountain range that had blocked their path. Though some still in the camp prayed they would return with help soon, others took matters into their own hands. Margaret Reed, whose husband James had been expelled from the company for murder, set out from the camp on January 4th, hoping to climb the Sierras and catch up with the Forlorn Hope. Five days later, she returned, unsuccessful. By January, the emigrants had been stranded in the valley for two months, living in cabins utterly buried in the snowbanks. Everyone in the camp was weak. Six had perished. Death seemed to hang over the entire camp as they waited for the next member to succumb to starvation or the bitter cold. On the morning of January 25th, those living in the Breen cabin heard a cry of despair from the adjacent shelter, where the German immigrant, Louis Kiesberg, had been living with his wife and two children. No one in the party was particularly fond of Kiesberg. He was a harsh and inconsiderate man who many believed was abusive toward his wife. But on that morning, it was hard not to be sympathetic towards the man. Kiesberg's son, Louis Kiesberg Jr., had died in the night. Patrick Breen, who had been keeping a daily diary all winter, wrote on January 26th, those who went to Sutter's not yet returned, provisions growing scant, people growing weak, living on a small allowance of hides. Pretty much the only food they had left were the ox hides they had been using as blankets or tent covers. Families tore them up into strips and cooked them, or boiled them to make an insubstantial stew. Even to the starving settlers, it was barely edible. They had no way of knowing that just 100 miles to the west, seven of their traveling companions had made their way to safety and were preparing a rescue expedition. A pioneer named Reason P. Tucker was at Sutter's Fort when he heard that a group of Donner Party survivors had reached Johnson's ranch. With the help of John Sutter, Tucker gathered all the men and supplies he could and set off to meet those who had miraculously survived. When they rode into Johnson's Ranch in early February, they found seven members of the Forlorn Hope, William Eddy, William Foster, Sarah Foster, and four other women recovering in Johnson's care. Most of them were still too weak to travel. None of them mentioned that they had eaten their deceased companions to survive. Only William Eddy volunteered to lead Tucker's men back over the Sierras. Eddy was still frail and malnourished, but as far as he knew, his wife Eleanor and his children, Margaret and James, were starving by the lake camp waiting for his return. He did not want to waste any time resting. On February 4th, the first relief party of 14 men set off from Johnson's ranch. That same day, by the lake camp, Margaret Eddy starved to death. Tucker kept a diary during the first few days of the rescue expedition. His first entry, on February 5, 1847, was unenthusiastic about their progress. First day, traveled 10 miles, bad roads, often miring down horses and mules. Tucker continued to write, on the 6th and 7th, traveled 15 miles. Road continued bad, commenced raining before we got to camp, and continued to rain all that day and night. Very severe. Even if they got to the lake camp soon, they'd have to fight the harsh winter in both directions. Fortunately for the trapped emigrants, this posse was not the only one headed their way. James F. Reed, exiled member of the Donner Party, had been fighting in the Mexican-American War while his family was snowbound in the Sierra Nevadas. He participated in the Battle of Santa Clara, 
hoping that if the war ended swiftly, he would be able to gather men to rescue the Donner Party. But shortly after the battle, he received a letter from William Big Bill McCutcheon, who was in Napa Valley gathering men and supplies to rescue his infant daughter, Harriet, from the mountains. This letter tersely read, You had better come in haste, as there is no time to delay. On February 7th, James Reed left San Francisco for Sonoma, determined to join up with McCutcheon. Three days later, on February 10th, the first relief party began to pass through the snow-covered parts of the mountain. Tucker recorded in his diary, animals floundering in snow and camped at the Mule Springs. The elevation was 3,849 feet, and the pack animals were not the only ones struggling. William Eddy's strength was flagging. As the snow piled up around him and the ground grew steeper, he realized he didn't have the energy to make it up the mountain. On February 11th, he reluctantly took the pack mules and went back down the slope. On February 18th, the rest of the group reached the summit of the Sierra Nevada, overlooking Truckee Lake. The entire canyon was white with snow. Not a single cabin was visible by the lake. Without William Eddy to guide them, Tucker had no way of recognizing the camp. But they descended anyway, making their way down the mountains and across the frozen surface of the lake. By their estimation, the snow was around 18 feet high. Any cabins would be completely buried. The men shouted across the snowbanks, praying that they hadn't arrived too late. At the sound of a human voice, figures began to appear. Daniel Rhodes, a member of the First Relief, described his first shocked impression of the Donner Party. We saw a woman emerge from a hole in the snow. As we approached her, several others made their appearance. They were gaunt with famine, and I never can forget the horrible, ghastly sight they presented. This first woman they saw, 35-year-old Levina Murphy, cried out to the rescuers in a hollow voice, Are you men from California, or did you come from heaven? The camp was a grisly sight. Eleven had died so far, and bodies lay scattered about the camp, half buried in the snow. The families of the deceased barely had the strength to drag the bodies a few feet away from their shelters, alongside the bones of their slaughtered oxen. The party distributed small portions of food among the Murphy cabin, being careful not to overfeed the shrunken survivors. Later that evening, Tucker spied another column of smoke rising from a hole in the snow half a mile to the south. Tucker reached the smoke's origin around 8 p.m. It was coming from the Graves' cabin. Tucker was greeted by a starved Elizabeth Graves, who had watched her husband and two oldest daughters leave over two months ago. She asked Tucker where Franklin was and whether he, Sarah, Mary Ann, and Jay had gotten through. Tucker told her that they had made it, but were too frozen to make the return journey. This was only a partial truth, as both Franklin and Jay had died during the trip. Tucker reasoned that admitting the full truth would dishearten Elizabeth and her remaining children even further. Elizabeth was suspicious, automatically fearing the worst had happened to her family. The next day, Tucker and the others traveled northeast to the Alder Creek camp. There, they found the Donner family with only a single ox hide between them for food. Tamson Donner and her recently widowed sister-in-law Elizabeth had 12 children between them who they struggled to feed. Tamson's husband George was bedridden, his entire right arm infected from a cut on his hand. Tucker explained to the women that they could only bring enough food for a couple of days. He told them they needed to bring everyone who could walk out of the valley. Of the whole group, Tamson Donner was in the best condition physically. 
She still had enough energy to walk about their tent while the rest of her family was reduced to crawling. But despite her relative strength, she would not go with them. She couldn't leave her husband behind. Between the two camps at Alder Creek and Truckee Lake, many did not have the strength to leave. Louis Kiesberg had a foot injury that prevented him from walking, but his wife, Philippine, would make the journey with their three-year-old child, Ada, leaving her crippled and bitter husband behind. On February 22nd, a party of 22 survivors set off across the lake. This included Margaret Reed, who was determined to break out of the mountains whatever the cost. But two of her children, three-year-old Thomas and eight-year-old Patty, were too weak to go very far. Tucker told Margaret that the two children would have to return to the cabins. Many years later, Leanna Donner would dictate a vivid description of this journey to her children. In her words, we were a sad spectacle to look upon as we left the cabins. We marched along in single file, the leader wearing snowshoes and the others following after, all stepping in the leader's tracks. We were placed on short allowance of food from the start, and each day this allowance was cut shorter and shorter until we received each for our evening and morning meal two small pieces of jerked beef about the size of the index finger of the hand. With food supplies running low, Tucker feared that the entire group would perish. He decreed that everyone would be on half rations for the rest of the journey. But even effectively budgeting their food stores could not keep death at bay. Soon after their departure, the infant Ada Kiesberg died. Having just buried her son, Louis Jr., less than a month earlier, Philippine was not prepared to lose her second child. She clutched the baby to her breast, refusing to let her go. As the rest of the party moved on, Reason Tucker sat down beside Philippine and asked her if she could give him the child and join the others. Reluctantly, she complied. In Tucker's own words, after she was out of sight, Rhodes and myself buried the child in the snow best we could. Her spirit went to heaven and her body to the wolves. Next, the remnants of the Donner Party fight their way through the mountains while their families try desperately not to starve. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. By the time the first relief arrived at Truckee Lake on February 18, 1847, there were just over 50 members of the Donner Party left alive. Those who remained were skeletal shells of their former selves, barely able to crawl around their meager shelters. The 22 strongest survivors started west with the first relief on February 22nd. The 33 who remained included the leader of the party, George Donner, whose right arm had become severely infected from a cut on his hand. Nine months ago, he had left Illinois with dreams of making his fortune in the new land of California. Now, he couldn't even get out of bed. Heading back through the mountains caused a great deal of stress for the relief party and survivors. Their food rations were utterly depleted, and by February 26th, they were toasting their rawhide shoestrings for lunch. Aquila Glover and John Rhodes set off ahead of the group, hoping to encounter another group of rescuers on the way. In an ironic twist of fate, their relief party was in desperate need of relief. Shortly after, Glover and Rhodes returned with dried beef, they had encountered a group of men coming the other way and had been sent back with supplies. 
The two parties met the next day. As the new men introduced themselves, Margaret Reed heard a familiar voice. She rushed toward the head of the column, followed by her children, Virginia and James Jr. Finally, the figures of Big Bill McCutcheon and James F. Reed came into view. Margaret sank to her knees from exhaustion and her long-lost husband stooped to embrace her. They had not seen each other since October. But the warmth of their reunion faded when James Reed realized just how starved his family had become since their last meeting. He wrote later, I cannot describe the death-like look they all had. Bread, bread, bread was the begging of every child and grown person. Following the tearful reunion, James Reed told Margaret that he had to press on to the lake camp. He had a duty to rescue their last two children and had promised McCutcheon that he would help him find his own child. So the Reed family parted ways once again. James continued on toward Truckee Lake, while Margaret, Virginia, and James Jr. made for Sutter's Fort. We have very few records of what happened at the lake camp during this time. The few records we do have indicate this is when the snowbound survivors began to turn to cannibalism. Levina Murphy suggested to the Breens that they eat the body of Milt Elliott, a teamster who had died several days before. Patrick Breen recorded this in his diary. I don't think that she has done so yet. It is distressing. The Donners told the California folks that they would commence to eat the dead people four days ago. I suppose they have done so ere this time. Yet another tragedy awaited the rescue party heading for the fort. Twelve-year-old William Hook, stepson of George Donner, became ravenous on the 28th of February. He noticed that every night after distributing food rations to the party, Tucker and the others hung their remaining supplies off a nearby tree. That night, William scaled the tree and broke into the food stores. During the morning, Tucker and the others discovered the boy lying by the tree, gasping, his pockets full of dried beef. He died shortly after, his shrunken digestive system unable to process the sudden abundance of food. On March 1st, Reed and McCutcheon finally arrived at Truckee Lake. They had not seen their traveling companions since October and were heartbroken to see them so frail and near death. The bodies that had been scattered around the campground a mere week ago were now bones. Reed entered the Murphy cabin first and informed everyone within that they would need to leave in two days. While the others prepared soup for the survivors, Reed and McCutcheon reburied McCutcheon's infant daughter, Harriet, who had died in early February. The next morning, they pushed on to the Donner's camp. The Donner family was in a grim state. Elizabeth was lying in her tent by her children, without the strength to move. In the other tent, George lay at death's door, attended by Tamsin. Their three children were healthier than either of the parents. According to Georgia Donner, the adults had finally decided to prepare human flesh to feed the youngest children, figuring they were too young to taste it. She wrote, Father was crying and did not look at us during the time. As they had with the Murphys, Reed and McCutcheon gave the Donners food and told them that anyone who had the strength to come with them in two days must do so. Then James Reed made his way back to the lake camp to check the other cabins for stragglers. On March 3rd, James Reed returned to the lake camp where he met Louis Kiesberg for the first time since his exile. The last time they saw each other, Kiesberg had suggested to the rest of the group that they hang Reed instead of exiling him. But as Reed approached the other man's withered figure, he made no mention of their last bitter encounter. Instead, Reed bathed Kiesberg and gave him a fresh set of clothes. Kiesberg said, 
Reed had no animosity toward me. He found me too weak to move. He washed me, combed my hair, and treated me kindly. Indeed, he had no cause to do otherwise. Kiesberg showed some selective memory in his account, never mentioning their previous quarrels. Perhaps his intention was to whitewash his own reputation, as James Reed was no longer the pariah he had been when Kiesberg called for his death. Now he was their savior, and Kiesberg wouldn't want to be remembered as the man who tried to hang their rescuer. Before Reed left, he gave Kiesberg a half pound of dried beef from his pack and a half teacup of flour. He told the German that he would return in two weeks and carry him over the mountain. Then, James Reed left the camp, taking 17 survivors with him. This included his two remaining children, Patrick Breen and his family, Elizabeth Graves and her children, and three of the younger Donners. He left behind three men to care for the survivors until the next expedition arrived. As they went through the melting snow, the clouds darkened overhead. Reed jotted down some scattered thoughts in his journal. Night closing fast, the clouds still thickening. Terror, terror to many. My heart dare not communicate my mind to any. Death to all if provisions do not come. On March 5th, the blizzard hit. The second relief huddled around the fire as the storm raged around them. Reed and McCutcheon led men to forage for firewood, but the task grew increasingly difficult as the weather intensified. The fire continually melted the snow, sinking deeper as the rescuers tried their best to shield the logs from the wind and snow. Eventually, the hole in the snow was wide enough for everyone to lay within it, sheltering them from the wind. Returning from a trip to gather wood, Big Bill McCutcheon lay down next to the fire. He was so numb from the cold, he didn't notice his clothes ignite. All four shirts he was wearing burnt off his back before he realized what was happening. He quickly doused the fire, and amazingly, he was only slightly singed. At the same time, the other leader of the group, James Reed, was suffering far worse. He became almost completely snowblind one day into the blizzard. The party were effectively stuck and almost completely out of food. On March 7th, the snowfall stopped. Reed, having recovered most of his sight, proposed they forage forward. But the party had suffered immensely over the three days. During the chaos of the storm, Elizabeth Graves starved to death, never learning that her children, Marianne and Sarah, were waiting for her on the other side of the mountains. She was joined in death by two five-year-olds, her son, Franklin Graves Jr., and Isaac Donner, the son of Jacob and Elizabeth Donner. Out of options, Reed and McCutcheon abandoned everyone who was too weak to go on. The only survivors who could join them were Reed's two young children, but the group of four had to continue on. They didn't want to give up and starve when they could bring more supplies back. The hole that they left the Breens and Graveses in would later be known as Starved Camp. Patrick Breen watched them go, praying that another rescue party would pass them soon. He huddled with his family with no food, save for the three bodies of their friends lying on the outside of the snow pit. As Reed left the 11 survivors in the mountains, Tamson Donner received terrifying news back by Alder Creek. Elizabeth Donner had died days earlier, and two of the men who had agreed to look after her family, Charles Stone and Charles Cady, were planning on heading back west on their own. Fearing they would be abandoned, Tamson promised to pay the men to take her three remaining daughters over the mountains. The men agreed, taking the six-year-old Francis, 
four-year-old Georgia and three-year-old Eliza away with them. However, by the time they reached the lake camp, they realized they could not carry the three children through such thick snow, so they deposited the Donner girls in the Murphy cabin. There were four living individuals in the Murphy cabin at the time. Levina Murphy, her eight-year-old son Simon, her one-year-old grandson George Foster, and the increasingly wild Louis Keysburg. Despite Reed's attempt to nurse him back to health, Keysburg had grown distant after being abandoned by his wife and surviving daughter. Sometime after March 8th, Keysburg took the child George Foster into bed with him, ostensibly to keep the child warm. The next morning, George was dead. Lavina Murphy accused Keysburg of killing the child. Keysburg did not respond to these accusations, but merely laid the baby's body on the floor of the cabin and returned to bed. Sometime later, the Donner girls saw Keysburg walk over to George Foster's body, pick him up, and hang him on a peg like a cut of meat. Back at starved camp, Patrick Breen had given up all hope, lying at the bottom of the hole in the ground, staring up into space. His wife Margaret kept their children alive on pitifully small doses of tea, heated over the fire and sweetened with the one lump of sugar she had left. But this barely took the edge off the ravenous hunger consuming the 11 survivors. One night, she woke Patrick in a panic, saying that her baby was dying. Patrick Breen replied, let him die. He will be better off than any of us. Shortly after, Charles Stone and Charles Cady passed by on their way back from the lake camp. Seeing the three bodies in the snow, they looked into the hole, making eye contact with the emaciated survivors and soldiered on, unable to help. At some point after they left, desperate for any kind of sustenance, Mary Donner suggested that they start eating the dead. Days later, on the afternoon of March 12th, the third relief arrived at Starved Camp. This party was led by William Eddy and William Foster, two surviving men of the Forlorn Hope. They were both motivated by the same urge, to find their youngest sons. What they found at Starved Camp was horrific. By the hole in the snow was the butchered body of Elizabeth Graves and a pile of child-sized bones that had once been Franklin Graves Jr. The Third Relief were faced with a problem. Mary Donner and the Graves' children were strong enough to continue, but the Breens were too weak to make it through the mountains without help. Carrying them the whole way back would mean splitting their party up, leaving only a few to go ahead to the lake camp. They took a vote on whether to leave the Breens behind. All but one voted to leave the Breens. The outlying vote was from a man named John Stark. The next morning, the party split. Eddie, Foster, and two others continued going east, while another two men took Mary Donner and the infant Elizabeth Graves. John Stark took charge of the remaining Graves' children and all the Breens. The children took turns riding on his back. On March 13th, William Eddy and William Foster arrived at Truckee Lake, several weeks after they had left it. They made for the Murphy cabin, where Reed had told them their children lived. Their two sons were nowhere to be seen. They only found Lavina Murphy, her son, the three youngest Donner girls, and Louis Keysburg. Eddie confronted Keysburg, demanding to know what became of their sons. Keysburg told him the two boys had died and been eaten. Eddie was infuriated. He almost killed Keysburg on the spot. He stopped himself, reasoning 
that he would not kill a starved man on a rescue mission. Instead, he promised to kill him if they ever met again in California. Foster and Eddie left the cabin, where they encountered Tamsin Donner stumbling through the woods. She had come from their camp looking for her children. Eddie and Foster escorted her to the Murphy cabin, allowing her a brief reunion with her three young girls. Tamsin was overjoyed they were still alive and insisted they go with the rescue group. Eddie and Foster attempted to persuade Tamsin to come with him, but Tamsin insisted that she be allowed to take one last visit to the Alder Creek camp to see if George Donner was still alive. Eddie and Foster could not wait. Their group left immediately, leaving Tamsin behind. She began the arduous trudge back to Alder Creek, where her husband still stubbornly clung to life. By this point, his arm was completely rotten with gangrene, and he was barely conscious. He too insisted Tamsin go with the rescuers, but she would not let him die alone. Only four members of the Donner Party remained in the two camps. Tamsin and George Donner remained in their tent by Alder Creek. In a cabin by the lake, one man and one woman remained who were too weak to travel. The starved Levina Murphy and an increasingly desperate Louis Kiesberg. When we return, these four final members of the Donner Party reach a gruesome end. Now, the conclusion to the story. By mid-March 1847, the horrors of the Donner Party were almost at an end. Three arduous rescue expeditions had attempted to bring the encamped survivors across the Sierra Nevada. Due to continuing harsh weather and the bare minimum of supplies, many of the survivors had died during transit, and even more died by the lake while their rescued family members were taken to safety. By the time William Eddy and William Foster caught up with the remainder of the Third Relief, there were only a few stragglers left at the camp. As far as they knew, George and Tamsin Donner remained by Alder Creek, and Lavina Murphy was living by Truckee Lake with Lewis Kiesberg. Eddie and Foster encountered a camp on the other side of the mountains, a company led by Salem Woodworth. Eddie told Woodworth that there were four people who still needed to be rescued, but the man refused to go back for them. His priority was to transport those who had already been rescued to Johnson's Ranch, the first settlement on the west side of the Sierra Nevadas. When the survivors gathered at the ranch, they took stock of their situation. Most families were in tatters, ragged and diminished. Incredibly, both the Breen and the Reed families were completely intact though they still required weeks to fully recover from their starved state. The Reeds were the only members of the party who had not cannibalized their fellow members to survive. On April 13th, a fourth and final relief party set out east toward Truckee Lake, led by William Legros Fallon, an experienced mountain man. The only member of the Donner Party to go back with them was William Foster, who wanted to see if Levina Murphy, his mother-in-law, was still alive. They were also joined by Reason P. Tucker, who had led the first relief. Fallon and the new members of the party were largely motivated by the rumors of gold in the Donner's possession, which would have been left unclaimed in the Alder Creek camp. They signed an agreement saying they were allowed a percentage of whatever valuables they found in the camp. They arrived on April 17th. Seeing the camp again, Reason Tucker wrote in horror, death and destruction, horrible sight, human bones, women's skulls sawed to get the brains, 
Better dwell in the midst of alarm than to remain in this horrible place. Foster and Tucker searched the cabins for survivors. Fallon and the others searched for money and trinkets. Soon, they came across Levina Murphy lying in the snow, one of her limbs removed, the saw still lying by her body. Their search uncovered no survivors or gold. After two hours of scouring the camp, they headed to the Alder Creek tents. It was an even more horrific sight. Bits and pieces of human bodies were scattered about the tents. A kettle inside the main tent was filled with chunks of meat cut from the bodies. Nearby, they found George Donner's severed head. Donner's skull had been split open and the brains completely removed. Fallon packed up as many of the valuables as he could find, but there was still no sign of Donner's gold. What they did find were a series of tracks in the snow heading away from the Donner camp. The tracks led to the cabin that had been constructed by Franklin Graves. Inside, they found Louis Kiesberg. He was alive, but almost feral. When asked where Tamsin Donner was, Kiesberg told them with detached frankness that she was dead and eaten. Fallon interrogated Kiesberg, demanding to know where the Donner's money was. Kiesberg said he didn't know of any money. The men didn't believe him. They searched every inch of the cabin and found several of the Donner's silks, George Donner's pistols, and $225 worth of gold coins on Kiesberg's person. Rumor had it that George Donner had almost $10,000 worth of coin when he departed from Illinois. Suspicious that Kiesberg had hidden the rest, they insisted he explain himself. Kiesberg told the men that Levina Murphy had only lived for about a week after the last relief party had left. He claimed to have waited four days before butchering and eating her body out of necessity. By his own admission, Kiesberg had been driven nearly mad by the staring eyes of his deceased companions, since he was too weak to remove their bodies from his cabin. In an interview years later, he said, I am fluent with four different languages, yet in all four, I do not find words enough to express the horror I experienced during those two months. Many a time I had the muzzle of my pistol in my mouth and my finger on the trigger, but the faces of my helpless, dependent wife and child would rise up before me and my hand would fall powerless. He told Fallon that after weeks of surviving on lean human meat, he encountered Tamsin Donner coming back from the Alder Creek camp. Her husband had died and she was intent on crossing the mountains herself. But when she made the attempt, she fell into a creek and caught a chill. She made Kiesberg promise her that he would save their gold for her children. The men did not believe Kiesberg. According to Reed, Tamsin Donner had been in relatively good health when they left her. Her sudden death didn't seem likely. They left Keysburg behind and resumed their salvaging. A day later, they returned to Keysburg's cabin. Their second interrogation was far less gentle than the first. Fallon's men threw a noose around Keysburg's neck and kicked him to the floor, threatening to hang him if he didn't tell the truth. Choking, Kiesberg promised to show them where the rest of the Donner's money was if they would spare his life. He led them to a cache of silver pieces buried near the tents at Alder Creek. These were worth about $273, well over $7,000 in today's money. Years later, Kiesberg admitted to burying the silver, but he insisted he had done this for safekeeping with the intention of eventually delivering it to the surviving Donners. Satisfied that they weren't going to turn up anything else at this godforsaken camp, 
the 4th Relief made their way back west, with Louis Kiesberg limping behind them. The only member of the 4th Relief who treated Kiesberg with any degree of warmth was Reason Tucker. He allowed Kiesberg to use some of his supplies as they made the return journey. Only a few months earlier, Tucker had escorted Kiesberg's wife along that very same trail. He knew that the man had some heartbreaking news awaiting him on the other side of the mountain. But Kiesberg did not have to wait that long. During the trek, Kiesberg found a fireplace that had belonged to one of the previous parties. Thinking it was a good place to rest, he set about heating himself some coffee. The snow around the fire melted, revealing a bit of calico fabric poking through. Curious, Kiesberg dug into it and found the remains of his infant daughter, Ada, who Tucker had buried in that same spot almost two months earlier. Despite their animosity towards him, the Fourth Relief protected Kiesberg like one of their own. In an interview years later, Kiesberg credited one of them with saving his life. I happened to be sitting in camp alone one afternoon. I was congratulating myself upon my escape from the mountains when I was startled by a snuffling, growling noise. And looking up, I saw a large grizzly bear only a few feet away. I knew I was too weak to attempt to escape and so remained where I sat, expecting every moment he would devour me. Kiesberg was startled by the blast of a rifle. The bear fell over dead, shot by William Foster. When the 4th Relief arrived at Johnson's Ranch on April 29th, Kiesberg was the last member of the Donner Party to cross the mountains. Of the 89 men and women who had begun the journey, 41 had died. This death toll included all four of the Donner family adults, George, Tamson, Jacob, and Elizabeth, two-thirds of the party's men, and one-third of the women and children. The only families that remained intact were the Breens and the Reeds. The rest had sustained horrible losses. The survivors of the Donner Party who made it to California settled the wild land they had fought so hard to reach. James Reed managed to acquire a large portion of land in the Santa Clara Valley. Though he was never tried for the murder of John Snyder, James Reed remained bitter about his own role in the Donner Party disaster. He wrote in 1847, "'Our misfortunes were the result of bad management. Had I remained with the company, I would have had the whole of them over the mountains before the snow would have caught them, and those who have got through have admitted this to be true." The orphaned children of George and Tamson Donner were taken in by other families, including the Reeds. Jacob Donner's children remained orphans. William Eddy, who lost his whole family, remarried and settled in Petaluma, California. The Breens settled in what would become San Benito County, where they prospered as prominent members of the community, though most of their neighbors hardly knew what they had been through to get there. But not all of the Donner Party survivors had happy endings. Louis Kiesberg was reunited with his wife at Sutter's Fort, but his spoiled reputation followed him for the rest of his life. When he arrived at Sutter's Fort, Kiesberg was called a murderer for the death of Tamson Donner. He brought legal action against William Fallon for slander. During the trial, Fallon alleged Kiesberg's involvement with no less than six murders, including Tamson Donner and the child, George Foster. And yet, the jury declared Kiesberg innocent he was awarded $1 in damages. Some sources claim that William Eddy tracked Kiesberg down in San Francisco and attempted to kill him in retribution for eating Eddy's son. James Reed stopped him from doing so. The worst of the rumors that followed him 
were that he had enjoyed eating human meat at the Donner camp. He vehemently denied this, but became a social pariah nonetheless. Every one of his business ventures failed. This included a hotel that burned down and a brewery that flooded. His wife and all but one of his daughters died before him. He died penniless and friendless in 1895. The last survivor of the Donner Party, Isabel Breen, died on March 25, 1935, at the age of 89. She was one year old when her parents took her across the Sierra Nevada mountains. Lansford Hastings, the man who set the Donner Party on the path to failure and was arguably the reason for their horrible fate, remained involved with their lives in the years that followed. He worked with James Reed and donated to orphanages the Donner children stayed at, but never expressed any remorse for the misleading information he put in the Emigrant's Guide to California and Oregon. In fact, his penchant for poorly thought-out plans continued throughout the rest of his life. During the Civil War, Hastings served as a major in the Confederate Army. After their defeat, he set out to found a Confederate colony in Brazil with the aim of writing The Emigrant's Guide to Brazil. He died en route. Today, the Donner Party is remembered as one of the most infamous disasters in the era of Western migration. To many who grow up in California, the name Donner is synonymous with starvation, cold, and cannibalism. And even if you've never heard of them, their name now adorns the very land that killed almost half their group, the lake where they wasted away with nothing but hope to keep them going, now bears the name of its survivors. And the gap between the mountains where so many of them perished from hunger and hypothermia is now known as Donner Pass. Thanks for listening to Survival. Join us next week for a new episode. You can find more episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Survival, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Survival was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs> <laughs>